If you're our guest, maybe with us here for the first time, we're delighted to worship God with you today. Brandon said it a few minutes ago, I'll say it again. We're going to worship through music in response to the word today around communion and such. And so our fabulous band will be back in just a little bit to help with all of that. We've been in a series of messages around here that we call Finding Faith in the Movies, where we're discovering lessons of faith and how they can be found in some very unlikely places, including the movie 300. We started the series, including the movie Cars last week. And this week, we're going to find faith in the film Little Miss Sunshine. How many of you have seen Little Miss Sunshine? Yeah, lots of you. It's kind of a cult film, I'd call it. Not out in the main highways of movie watching necessarily, kind of a cult, kind of a little sect of us who watch this sort of film, right? And in the words of a friend of mine, Little Miss Sunshine is an odd movie, right? It, it just is. It is, at its very core, a darker tale on the incredibly dysfunctional family road trip, like incredibly dysfunctional family road trip. The Hoover family, see, they've got more than their share of problems. The father, this guy named Richard, he's a motivational speaker, but he is on a career downslide, but he stubbornly is committed to his refuse-to-lose philosophy, and he's desperately trying to get this nine-step motivational program to the marketplace throughout the whole film. The mother, Cheryl, she too is desperate. She is desperately trying to keep the family together amidst growing dissension from like every angle, every corner. And she just barely disguises her impatience with her husband's canned claptrap, I like to call it, constantly hinting at this deeper marital disharmony that's going on. Their son, Dwayne, who is a funky dude, he's taken a vow of silence, see, a vow of silence until he gets into the Air Force Academy. And he did that as a tribute to this crazy guy named Nietzsche. Some of you have heard of him. And Grandpa, ah, old Grandpa, right? He's this deeply profane old horn dog with a very nasty heroin habit. <laughs> the newest addition to the household is Cheryl's suicidal brother, this guy named Frank, right? He is a renowned Prowse scholar who both, lo who both lost the grad student that he loved as well as the MacArthur Foundation genius grant to this rival academic. And in the midst of all that dysfunction, the family's sole oasis of serenity is Olive, a slightly chubby, bespectacled seven-year-old with a very questioning nature about her and a fixation on beauty pageants. I had a gal come up to me last night, two gals actually, they were sisters, and the one sister said, I just need to tell you that my sister was Olive growing up. And, you know, that's no compliment. Believe me, that is no compliment. And little Olive, she's been taught to pursue her dreams with her whole life. And she's been privately rehearsing her talent routine with good old grandpa. Through a series of very flukish events, Olive is invited to compete in the Little Miss Sunshine competition out in California, desperately strapped for cash while awaiting Richard's system to pay off. The family decides to rally together and support Olive, piling the entire band into this barely running VW bus with a broken horn and heading out, the whole thing's broken really, and heading out on a three-day journey to Redondo Beach, California. In this scene that we're about to watch, the Hoover family is on the cusp of their arrival in Redondo Beach for the Little Miss Sunshine competition, and little Olive is in the back seat testing Dwayne's vision, who is sitting in the very back seat of the VW bus. 
when with the help of Uncle Frank, they stumble upon an earth-shattering realization. Watch this. Beach 46. It's 2.15. Maybe a few minutes late. Now, Richard, they said 3 o'clock sharp. They were very explicit. We can't cross these people. Trust me. Mom, Wayne has pretty, pretty vision. I bet he does. Okay, now I'm gonna check to see if he's colorblind. What's the letter in the circle? No, 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 no. Inside the circle. Right there. See? It's an A. Can't you see it? Right there. It's bright green. Dwayne, I think you might be colorblind. Fly jets if you're colorblind. Uh, we've got a little bit of. Got, okay, we've got an emergency back here. I think we just need to what pull over, man. Just What's pull the over. Come on, we have we have to go. I'm not going. Dwayne. I said I'm not. Okay, I don't care. I'm not getting on that bus again. Dwayne, for better or worse, we're your family. No, you're not my family. Okay, I don't want to be your family. I hate you! Divorce? Bankrupt suicide? 
You're losers. Okay. No. Please just leave me here, Mom. Okay? Please, please, please. Please just leave me. Maybe can somebody stay here with them? I'll stay. Um, that is not happening. All right, well. Uh, just worried about the time. Olive, you, uh, you want to try talking to him? Richard, no, there's nothing to say. We just have to wait. Honey. <sighs> Wayne's pain is almost palpable in that clip, isn't it? Like the worst punch in the gut kind of deal. And I'm sure there are a whole bunch of people sitting here in this room today who have very similar experiences to Dwayne. Our whole world in just an instant crashing in on us. Some catastrophic news, some cataclysmic event that shattered our dreams into a million little shards. That event, that news caused us and caused the people around us to be like hollowed out by the immense pain. It was absolutely disastrous to our plans, how we thought the whole of our life was going to go. Maybe you identify very well with the woman who wrote, Lord, I'm drowning in a sea of perplexity. Waves of confusion crash over me. I'm too weak to shout for help. Either quiet the waves or lift me above them, she writes. It's too late for me to learn how to swim. And maybe as you sit here today, that cataclysmic event, that pain, has you asking the question, what in the world is there left to trust in? What in the world can I bank on? What in the world can I sink my roots down into? And the truth is, you're not alone 
in that experience. You're definitely not alone in asking that question. Our big idea for today reads this way. To find hope in the midst of shattered dreams, in the midst of pain, in the midst of disaster, and to help others do the same, that takes, see, the very deepest knowledge of God and his character, doesn't it? I'm going to show you a clip and ask you if you remember this day. question, do you remember that day, right? Any of us who were alive on that day won't ever forget that day, will we? And we think about 9-11, and we think 9-11 is about as bad as it gets, isn't it? But it's not. July 18th, 586 BC was, as scholars say, 9-11 multiplied by about a thousand. That's the scholar's take. 9-11 multiplied by about 1,000. It was bad, very, very bad. And you're like, well, what in the world happened on July 18th, 586 B.C.? Well, to understand that, we've got to go back in history a bit, all the way back to 1050 B.C. You can follow along in your notes page if you want. I don't like that. We're going to have to turn the page to a clean sheet because the sheet must be clean. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, right? 1050. And he reigned until about 1010 when who was the next king of Israel? David. That's exactly right. Good job, David. Who followed David? Solomon. That's exactly right. 970. Can you read that at least a little bit up there? All right. And then in 930, everything went along great until about 931, the kingdom of Israel divided. Divided kingdom 931. And it looked like this, something like this. Israel went to the north. These 10 tribes split off. And everything in Israel was trucking along just fine until about 721 B.C., The Assyrians kicked Israel's butt. They just literally wiped them off the map. Israel was obliterated, gone. Judah was the southern kingdom. And everything, uh, Israel was trucking along for almost 200 years. Down here in Judah, they went quite a ways longer, all the way to 586 B.C., when the Babylonians... sacked Jerusalem. The Babylonians kicked Judah's butt, sacked the city of Jerusalem. 
About 586, along comes this guy. He was on the scene before, but in 586, this guy named Jeremiah writes a book called Lamentations. That's a little brief history of the nation of Israel, the divided kingdom, and such. And that period of the divided kingdom was brought about by the revolt of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. See, these 10 tribes later became known, you might have heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They were scattered out to all the other nations. They're lost tribes. That's why we call them that. The southern kingdom, called Judah, was created by two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in 931. And from 588 to 586 B.C., the armies of Babylon ground away at the defenses of Jerusalem. And within the city of Jerusalem, this ever-tightening siege by Babylon's armies began literally unraveling the fabric of all of society. Starving people literally resorted to cannibalism in the city of Jerusalem. It was bad. Idolatry flourished everywhere. Paranoia gripped the city, the whole nation, really. But that long siege abruptly ended on July 18, 586, thus the importance of that day, when Jerusalem's walls were breached by the Babylonian army, who began then to enter the city. And while it took several weeks, absolutely, for Nebuchadnezzar to secure the city of Jerusalem, to strip it of its valuables, by August 14, 586 B.C., the task was completed and the total destruction of Jerusalem began. The armies of Babylon burned the temple. That's a big deal. They burned the king's palace. They burned all of the other major buildings in the city. They tore down the wall all the way around the city, leveled it, which had provided her protection to that point. And when the Babylonians finally finished their destruction and departed with their prisoners, lots of prisoners, all that was left was a jumbled heap of smoldering rubble a thousand times worse than 9-11. And the prophet Jeremiah, he was on the scene this whole time. He witnessed all that destruction. He witnessed the desecration of the temple. That once proud capital of Jerusalem had literally been trampled into the dust. The people of Judah, they were now under the very harsh hand of this cruel taskmaster, the Babylonians. And so see, it was with all these events stamped very vividly on his heart and on his mind, Jeremiah sat down one day to compose a series of laments or funeral dirges, you might refer to them as, to mourn Judah's incredible loss. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3 is where we're going to camp out, hang out a bit today. The book of laments called Lamentations. And see, because of what Jeremiah had seen, because of what he had experienced in the destruction of his nation, he has lots and lots of credibility to speak to us about finding hope in the midst of shattered dreams, in the midst of pain, and in the midst of disaster. And I love what a guy named Chuck Swindoll says about crisis, which is really what shattered dreams and what pain and what disaster are. Swindoll says this, you cannot prepare for a crisis after that crisis occurs. And he's right. He goes on to say, preparation must take place before we're nose to nose with the issue, end quote. It's a great point. 
Because see, if our faith is just limping along, if our faith is just barely able to keep up with the pressures of life, when life is going pretty good, when the waters of our little pond are quite ripple-free, how in the world can we ever expect our faith to hold up when all hell breaks loose? And it does sometimes, doesn't it? And see, Jeremiah... He did that grueling spade work on his soul to prepare for whatever shattered dreams and whatever pain and whatever disaster would ever come his way. And so we sit here today in the year 2008, about 2,600 years or so later than the book of Lamentations was written. And we get the opportunity to learn from Jeremiah about how he, about how his countrymen faced literally some of the worst stuff that could ever befall humanity. And how we too can face whatever might befall us and actually come out on the other side with a deeper faith. Not with a shipwrecked faith. Not with a faith that's left in a heap of smoldering rubble. With a richer faith. A stronger faith. A better faith. And so today we're going to look at seven principles from Jeremiah about shattered dreams about pain, about disaster, so that we can actually be prepared for when they strike. Point number one is this. Shattered dreams and pain and disaster can be endured with hope in God's salvation, which is the ultimate restoration. This is fantastic. Look at Lamentations three twenty-five to 30. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. Just let that wash over you for a moment. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good, Jeremiah goes on to say, to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord, and it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. That's God's discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust. A lot like that clip we watched, isn't it? Dwayne laying face down in the dust. For see, Jeremiah writes, there may be hope at last. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. It's really only natural for all of us to wish to be free from the agony of shattered dreams of pain and disaster, isn't it? But what Jeremiah is teaching us in chapter 3 of Lamentations is there's much more in play, see, than just being free from the suffering, the pain, the disaster of the moment. Jeremiah is trying to help us understand that we can endure that terrible stuff, those shattered dreams, that pain, that disaster. We can lie face down in the dust and we can endure the insults and the strikes of our enemies. Why? Because God is able to save our soul. We can endure it because God is able to save our soul. Which at the end of the day, isn't that what really matters? It is. It absolutely is. We think so often that ultimate restoration is about being free from hardship and free from suffering and free from pain. But really, ultimate restoration is salvation by God from the eternal consequences of our sin. That's ultimate restoration. And it is wide open to every single one of us, every single person walking planet Earth today, which makes God our ultimate source of hope. See, I understand that out in the rural, very rural Pacific Islands, when a typhoon is about to hit the island, those islanders, they literally run outside of their homes and they tie themselves to immovable palm trees. 
Trees that have withstood storm after storm after storm for years and years and years. And they do that until the storm passes. And you go like, that's crazy. Why in the world would they do that? Well, because see, everything else in their world, their homes, every other building on the island, was very likely to blow away in the face of such extreme storms. The same thing goes for our lives, see. When everything in our lives is being uprooted, life is coming unglued, our only hope comes from being tied up to the unmovable God of the universe who does not waver, no matter the size, no matter the strength of the storm, see. Shattered dreams, pain, and disaster can be endured with hope in God's salvation, which is the ultimate restoration, point number one. Number two reads like this. Shattered dreams and pain and disaster are only temporary and are tempered by God's compassion and by God's love. Lamentations 3, 31 and 32. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Let that wash over you. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. Jeremiah, when he wrote the book of Lamentations, he penned those words to answer some of the questions that were flying around in 586. Had God abandoned his people? Because it sure felt like it to the people of Jerusalem, didn't it? Had he retracted his love from them? Because it sure felt like he had. The people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem wondered, are we all on our own now? And we asked the very same questions many days. When life gets hard, don't we? In the midst of shattered dreams, in the midst of pain, in the midst of disaster, we ask the very same thing. But notice Jeremiah's answer. No one is abandoned by the Lord forever. It might feel like it, absolutely. It certainly felt like it in 586 for the people of Judah, for the people of Jerusalem. But hardship is temporary. And in the midst of difficulty, God is still showing compassion. Why? How? Because that's who he is. It's the core of his being. He is love. He is compassion. That is who God is. Point number three on your outline. This is a biggie. God does not delight in shattered dreams, in pain, or in disaster. How do we know that? Look at verse 33. For he, that's God, does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. But there were people in 586 B.C. who were talking about how much God enjoyed inflicting pain on helpless people. They were saying it. Just like there are people around today who say the exact same thing. Moment of confession for all of us together here. Raise your hand if you're so bold. Uh, How many of you burned ants with a magnifying glass when you were younger? Yeah, mm-hmm. doesn't it feel good just to get that out on the table? <laughs> Confession, I, I did. I am a sick, twisted individual. I did. But see, that burning ants with a magnifying glass, that's literally some people's view of God. Like he's sitting up in the sky, holding a magnifying glass, focusing that beam on us just to watch us scurry to the corners. But that's not God. Jeremiah says as much. Judah's afflictions in 586 were not cruel acts of a capricious God who delighted in inflicting pain on helpless people. No way. The very same thing goes today for our shattered dreams, for our pain, for our disaster. God does not delight in that whatsoever. 
Point number four, if shattered dreams, if pain and disaster come because of injustice, God sees it and he does not approve of it. Verses 34 to 36, follow along if you would. If people crush underfoot all the prisoners of the land, if they deprive others of their rights in defiance of the Most High, if they twist justice in the courts, doesn't the Lord see all these things? We all know that life can be very hard. We all know that life can be very unfair. Life is not just a bowl of cherries. Lots of times, it's just the pits, isn't it? Oftentimes, out in the rose garden, there are no flowers, just thorns, right? Life is hard, life isn't fair, but the text says God sees and God knows these things. He sees them, he knows them, and at the end of the day, another piece of God's character is justice. God is just, and there is a price, see, for injustices done to us, to others, to the people of Judah in 586. There is a price for injustice done. And I love how the Bible is so incredibly real about life. Life in relationship with God is not just obnoxiously positive. Life is not just always about the bright side. We can't always just speak happy speak and wishful thinking. Life is not always in a great place. Naive and unrealistic platitudes of happy, smiley-faced religion do not cut it in the real world. And I love that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the scripture is very clear about the real struggles, the real suffering of this life. Lamentations is a great example of that. And those are God's chosen people of Israel that this pain was inflicted upon. I love that because life is real. Yeah, there are great times, there are sweet times, there are rich times. But I appreciate the fact that when we open the Bible, it speaks to life today. There's no call in the text for just painting a smiley face on, pretending that life is hunky-dory. Yeah, I'm doing great. Instead, the Bible tells it like it is and gives us permission to do the very same thing. Read the book of Lamentations cover to cover sometime, and you'll see there is immense pain expressed to God. We can express our very real pain our very real thoughts, our heartfelt honesty to God. He's a big God. He can handle it. He isn't scared of our stuff. We can dump it out. Jeremiah dumps it out in Lamentations. It's all throughout the Bible. But at the end of the day, we rest and we know that God sees our pain. He sees our difficulty. And God actually makes a difference in it. He makes a difference in our lives that are often filled with shattered dreams and with pain and with disaster. Point number five. This is a biggie. Shattered dreams and pain and disaster always occur in relationship to God's sovereignty. Shattered dreams, pain, and disaster always occur in relationship to God's sovereignty. Look at verses 37 and 38. Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? Jeremiah here asks a couple of rhetorical questions. Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? Does not the Lord, the Most High, send both calamity and good? They don't require any answer, do they? Nobody commands anything to happen without the Lord's permission. And yes, 
Both good and calamity are sent and are allowed by God himself. And passages, texts like this one, challenge our image and our concepts of God, don't they? There is this very real tension that's present here that we've got to hold, that we've got to live with. Because, see, verses like this one communicate to us that God isn't just a buddy who we call on in times of trouble but don't need to bother about when things are going good. The Bible here and in lots of other places affirms a completely sovereign God who is involved at some level in every action, in every event, and in every decision ever made throughout all of eternity. And that includes our shattered dreams, that includes our pain, that includes our disaster. That's a big deal. A big deal. And what compels us because of that, it compels us to a place of absolute and utter dependence on God, doesn't it? An absolute and utter dependence on God for any blessing, for any mercy, for any goodness whatsoever, see. We are completely dependent upon God for anything good that happens in our lives. And I don't know about you, but that is incredibly motivating to me. Because, see, that stretches me to trust God more, to be much more humble than I might otherwise be, and to certainly worry less in the midst of difficulty because it's not in my control anyway. God is on his throne. He is in charge. He's got it. He's got it. Point number six, in the case of Judah and sometimes with us, shattered dreams and pain and disaster ultimately come because of sin. It's true. Look at verse 39 then why should we mere humans complain when we are punished for our sin? See, Jerusalem and the people of Judah, they were being punished because they were wandering far from God. That's why 586 happened. That's why the world was wrecked in July of that year. God told them, as a matter of fact, that this destruction, this wrecking, would be the price of their disobedience. He tells them so in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'd invite you to read Deuteronomy 28 sometime when you think your life is going particularly bad. It's nothing like Deuteronomy 28. The cost that God portrays for people who disobey him. And the truth is, see, the very same thing happens for us today. I think back on the mid-90s in my life. And it was a season of incredible pain, incredible difficulty. What I would have at the time absolutely called disaster. My life was a mess. And I think about all that I endured through those years. And I go like, oh yeah, I get it. I see very plainly why things in my world were not going well for me in those days. It's because I was sinning all over the place. Moment of confession, me to you. I was sinning all over the place. And with sin comes consequences. With sin comes punishment. Now, sure, we all sit here and we all say we believe in consequences for actions, right? Especially when they're happening to someone else. Yeah, he or she is just getting what they deserve, reaping what they're sowing, right? We all say we believe that. But when those punishments and those consequences are in our lap, when they're happening to us, we're going like, what the heck? What's the deal here? I want you to be really careful with this one, okay? Not every bad thing in our lives 
Not every bad thing in everyone else's lives are punishment for sin, okay? This is another tension that we must hold with the scriptures. It doesn't work that way. Very often, bad things happen in a way that are, is in no way meant as punishment or consequences for sin, okay? Hold that intention. And our last point, number seven, we're going to land here today. Shattered dreams and pain and disaster are meant to accomplish the greater good, I'd even say much greater good, of turning people to him. That's turning people to God. Look at verse 40 of Lamentations 3. You might have heard this one before. Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. And this is very intimately related to point number six. Because see, these days we're often real prone to blame God, right? In our days of shattered dreams and pain and disaster, instead of turning the microscope inward and searching our ways. What in me might be causing this to happen? To see if we could be the responsible one. We so often want to look everywhere else but right here, right? It's natural. We all do this. And near the end of that stretch in my life, the mid-90s, when I finally, I had heard this verse a lot before, but I finally took this verse to heart and I literally tested and examined my ways. I held it up against the, the ways of my life, up against the measuring stick of God and his word and his perfection and his holiness. And holy cow, it was ugly, like gnarly ugly, yuck. I had some serious cleaning up to do with God. And I got to work on that. And it wasn't like a thing that took like 10 minutes or 10 weeks or it more like was about 10 months of that. Testing and examining my ways. Turning back to the Lord. About 10 months, okay? This isn't like a right now kind of thing very often. But you know, when I did that, when I pressed into that stuff, when I decided to obey God in some areas of my life that I hadn't been, it was a new day, an absolutely new day. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect by any stretch, but it was new, see? And if you ask me now about those days to look back and reflect, you know what I say? Those days sucked. They really sucked. Life was incredibly unhappy for me then, but I can absolutely say with all candor, almost a decade later, that it was so worth it to bring me back to the Lord, all that misery, see, really? That was meant by God to be corrective in my life, to bring me back. And I, and I don't think I lost my salvation in those days. But I certainly wasn't walking with God. I wasn't obeying God. I wasn't pursuing God. And that misery was corrective in my life to bring me back to him. I'm gonna ask you if you would please to take your things and set them aside. And I just invite you to bow your heads close your eyes and would you just speak to the Lord about what's on your heart and your mind you can do that now if you would and I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would please as I stand up here on the stage today I don't have a clue where you stand in relationship to God today only you and God know that stuff 
But maybe as you sit here in this room today, God feels incredibly distant from you. I want you to know, though, that while it might feel like God is far away, the truth is he's so near to you right now. He is so near to you. He's actually so near to you that he's much more real even than the shattered dreams and the pain and the disaster that you just might be walking through in this season. And I invite you in this moment to trust God today. Because you know, God longs to hold you up in the midst of whatever it is that you're walking through. And you can in this moment just like a child, look up at your heavenly Father's face and see that his arms are wide open to you. His son, Jesus Christ, is ready right now to enter your life. And all you have to do is invite him in. All you have to do is invite him in. And you can do that right now. You can do it by praying along with me right where you're sitting a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect, that you are holy, and that my sin has separated me from you. And God, with everything in me, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. God, I need you to change me. God, I really need you to clean my life up. Starting today, God, I make you the boss of my life. And you know, if you prayed with me just then to invite Jesus into your life, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing is a bigger deal than that. And it's such a big deal that around here, we actually ask people to tell us when they've made that decision. And I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm the only one looking around the room. I'm just going to ask you, if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me? You can do that now if you would. Just say, yeah, I I did that. Make sure I catch your eye if you would, please. Yeah, right back there. Way to go. Way to go right back there. And you too over there. Good job. Right now, God is changing you and he's making you new. Just make sure I catch your eye if you would. I don't want to miss anybody. God, we say thank you for your sovereignty and your supremacy. The fact that everything in this world is in your control and under your authority. We cling to that. We depend on you. God, it is hard. You're not unfamiliar with that. But I pray in the moments that are darkest of our lives that we would look to you, that we wouldn't look anywhere else, that we wouldn't go pursuing other gods, little little G gods, that we would run, that we would flee to you, our rock and our refuge, our strong tower, hope of our salvation, God. We're trusting you and we're depending on you. We're yielding our lives to you, God.